When you have one grandparent that is Polish, one that is Libyan, one that is Yemeni, one that is Romanian, and you have lived across the street from a Palestinian for three generations, you don't need to make like fettuccine Alfredo in your restaurant. You don't need to look outside of the things that actually make up who you are. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. We are thrilled to be back for the fourth season of Schmaltzy with a very special Passover episode. At the end of last season, we asked you, our audience, who we should have on the show. We got a lot of great guest ideas, but the one that was the most popular, and for good reason, was our friend and board member, Chef Michael Solomonov. Mike has received five James Beard Awards, including Outstanding Chef and Outstanding Restaurant for Zahav, his wildly popular restaurant in Philly. He recently opened two restaurants in Brooklyn, Grillhouse Sensation Laser Wolf and Kafar, an all-day restaurant and cafe. Mike is one of the busiest people I know, so it was such a treat to have him join us here in the studio. He always has the best stories, and it was hard to pick just one. But I wanted to start our conversation with Passover. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's good to be here. Can't believe Passover is already here. So, do you have any good stories about Seder? So my Passover story is actually almost accidental. We opened Zahav Restaurant May 5th, 2008. We were just like every restaurant opening. We were delayed and way over budget. And my family all over the country is like, and actually my mom and Israel are like, let's have the Seder in Philly. And I was like, all right, that's not at all supportive, but yes, we'll have the Seder in Philly. I live in a tiny little house. And I was like, wait a minute, we have the dining room at Zahav that is actually big enough to host everybody for Seder. But it was a construction site. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, it would have been illegal for insurance purposes. So they all fly to Philly. And my family is really concerned about the organization and the order and the this and then that and checking the box of the things that make to them a very meaningful Seder. And I had none of those things. We had Sunday school tables <laughs> and no utensils. And I was hiding this drug addiction with like nobody knew about and things were falling apart. But I did have lamb shoulders in the restaurant. And we were putting together the Zahav menu. We had these little barbecue grills and we had an oven that worked, but gas wasn't turned on yet. So we had the electric convection oven. I had these lamb shoulders, bottles of pomegranate juice, and I had charcoal. So I brined these lamb shoulders and then we barbecued them. And I was like, there's no way that I can slow cook a lamb shoulder over charcoal in my restaurant in under like three days. It would take forever. So we seared them, hot smoked them over the charcoal and then put them in these big hotel pans and just covered them with pomegranate juice. And I just put them in the oven for like eight hours. And then when they came out, they were like incredible. So it was like a a lot of stressful stuff, but you know what? We had a great Seder. The restaurant did not burn down. Nobody got injured and the lamb was fucking amazing. And it's still on the menu it's off to this day. Thank you so much for sharing that. Totally. Obviously, it seems like Passover is a very, very special holiday for you. It's a documented 
important story for all of us. And it is sort of universal. And the Haggadahs that we have are my grandparents who were also reform. And they're really beautiful, beautiful. And I love the fact that my American grandparents, that I still have these that we get to sort of share and use, which is great. But like, I feel like what my aunts and my cousins and my uncles sort of brought to this is this sort of evolution, right? And being able to apply all of these stories and these principles and these values and the grief and the, you know, the sort of sun rising and landing and, you know, eventually making it to the land of Israel, like to be able to apply it in modern terms, I think is really, is really important. Yeah. Speaking of that evolution, what's your plan for this year? Who will be at the table? How are you taking some of the family gatherings that you grew up with and bringing it into your life now? I mean, the food will be very, very good. <laughs> um, I think what my my oldest, so both my kids are great readers. My oldest like loves to read. And I guess as a parent, I love seeing sort of my kids take on this. And I love the participation of it. And I feel like I learn a lot from like my kids and my family. I'm excited to see what the takeaway is this year. But I also feel like, you know, this sort of precarious position that we're in as a people becomes increasingly more brought to light. And I feel like the idea of being sort of sovereign in the way that we think or unified in the way that we are in our communities is of the utmost importance right now. And so to participate in a Seder, even though <laughs> my participation in most traditions is sort of questionable, you know, to me, it, it's like saying the Shema every day, which I say, or rapping to fill. And I do it because I have great faith in maybe a God or a religion that I have very little understanding of, but that doesn't really like deter my spirituality or my faith or the importance and my participation in it, you know? So just to participate and do something that our people have done for generation and generation and like door for door and, and, you know, those things mean something to me. And I guess the meaning is always sort of changing, but it becomes more and more clear and more poignant the longer I do it. I think that there's a lot of people out there that didn't grow up with such a specific tradition around this holiday. And maybe they're thinking about how are they going to do their own Seder this year or starting something new, maybe with their friends, not even their family. Like, What advice would you give to someone hosting a Seder for the first time? What are the important things? I think the easiest thing to do is really just figure out the different traditions, the culinary traditions, and why they're so important. And then that's a very easy way to sort of shape the meal. And I think that you can find any kind of Haggadah like online that works for you, many of which are easy to follow and that have themes and ideas that apply themselves to, to what we're dealing with in modern day, not even as Jews, as, as humans. So I feel like you can find the things that work for you and celebrate them. And it can be a dinner party or it can be really a service if you want. But I think it's a really important and, and exciting and stimulating holiday. And I, I want to turn this back on you. What are the things that you need to eat for Pesach that make it a real Seder? Okay. I see the tables have turned. Okay. Yeah. Literally. So easy, I'm yeah, no, nope, yeah. I'm ready. I grew up in a completely unreligious way, but very culturally Jewish. And I grew up in New York. So I have gone to a variety of Seders. Sometimes we went to my dad's friends from Bensonhurst Syrian 
Seder. Mm. Sometimes we went to a very Ashkenazi Seder in New Jersey. Sometimes we had it within our family. And I've hosted my own too. But for me, what I love about Passover is the seasonality of it and also that it's signaling spring. Right. I love chopped liver. So regardless, I'm having that and I'll probably make that myself because I'm pretty particular about it. Gefilte fish, I could honestly take it or leave it. And also hate to say this and I love like a good chicken broth, but sometimes the matzo balls just in general don't do it for me. Mm. So what I would look forward to serving this year would be definitely a lot of salads, hopefully with some spring ingredients. And, you know, also thinking about some of the foods that we have on the archive, which I've made before, like some of Fanny Gerson's Mexican Passover recipes are super delicious. I need to menu plan a little bit is what it sounds like. (laughs) But Obviously, I love stories and storytelling, and what you said is true. This is a story that can be applied to so many things happening in the world today, and thinking about resilience, positivity, miracles. I still believe in miracles, and a lot of times Passover reminds me of that. Yeah. And just about having trust and faith in whatever that means for you. And yeah, and really just having a chance to start a new season. Yeah. Yeah. Rebirth. That's exactly. Amazing. Exactly. That's Still believe in miracles. That is like, <laughs> I love that. I think it's, I think it's good. You know, a lot of times in New York, it can feel really hard, right? Sometimes it just can feel like a hustle all the time. Yes. And sometimes when that happens and you're feeling really down, there will be something around the corner that will be so beautiful Yes. Or will be so poignant or will just make you think about something in a different way. Yes. And that's what still makes me believe. You know, I think that also the ability to take off this sort of horse blinders of like pragmatism and logic and reason sometimes and just open yourself up to the world and the universe that is around you is a really wonderful thing. And uh, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, Seder for me, I mean, I work nights, right? So normally I'm serving people, right? And so family dinners for me are very important. I love, I love Shabbat. I love the idea of turning off your phone and resting with the people that you care about and love. I mean, it is a brilliant, brilliant holiday. I don't get to do it that often. So like actually to even have Seder with my family is such a wonderful thing. And again, there's, there's so many people at the same time doing the exact same thing that they've been doing for like thousands of years. And to be part of that is is truly spiritual. Definitely. How many restaurants are you now? 15? Uh, no, including all the Federals and Goldies. We have like 24, 25. Okay. My math's off. It's okay. So- it's a lot. Too many <laughs> is the right answer. Okay. So how do you manage that kind of hectic schedule between work, family life? What are the things that you squeeze in for fun? Uh, I box a lot. I like to box. Oh, wow. Um, cool. And I don't know. I like to do a lot of stuff. I don't love lifting weights, but there's like a specific thing in Philly that I do. It's called X-Force, which sounds like I should be doing steroids and stuff like that, but it's not. And I like to surf and snowboard and run and all that. I don't get to do that much of it as much as I'd like, but I'd like to do that. And I also think for like the monkeys and the crickets that are like scre- screaming in my head, it's good. I like being outdoors a lot. I like cooking at home. I, I recently moved to like a house that is outside of the city. So I have a kitchen 
Nice. It's like a kitchen kitchen, you know, which isn't fancy, but it's like spacious. I don't and know anything about that. I know, so. I know. It's a first <laughs> it's for me. So I, I would say the pandemic sort of forced me to become a home cook, which I really love. Like, I love it. And it's something I can do with the kids, which is great. Are they interested in that? Yeah. So it's funny. My youngest, Lucas, loves cooking with me at home. My oldest, David, will come in. My ex-wife lives like very close to Zahav. And on nights that my kids are with their mom, they'll like walk to Zahav now, which is great and kind of hang out. And so my oldest last night was working the mango, like cooking food a la esh and fanning the charcoal with one of my chefs, Remy, which is really cool. He doesn't love cooking it at the house with his dad, but he likes being back there and de-skewering like shipudim and all that stuff, which is the best, the best. So I like being a dad a lot, actually. I think that's pretty fun. Yeah. I don't know. What do you do for fun? I love going to see art. I just saw this David LaChapelle photograph exhibit. I like to cook and yeah, just do all the stuff around town, going to the ballet tonight. We have fun cultural things like that in Philly. New York is just really unparalleled. I mean, there's just so much going on here, but it's nice to be able to do those things. I mean, I found that the more of the outside things, like the more shows, the more art, my cooking and creativity get significantly better. I would say that most of my dishes or or like ideas in the restaurant space come from being far away from the actual restaurants. Okay. Now that's fascinating to me. So if you're trying to develop a new dish or think about how you want to change the menu for the seasons, you let it come to you or what's your process? So I'll put aside time to focus on like the actual cooking. Okay. And what I'll do is like, uh, it's a hub on Mondays we're closed. So I'll try to like slot aside a few hours to just develop something, which I know sounds ridiculous since I'm like a chef. But honestly, the more responsibility you get, the less time you get to do, actually do the things you like, right? So unless I'm cooking at my house, I have to like actually plug in time at the restaurant to just cook quietly. So I'll develop recipes there, but ideas come from when I'm in the park, when I'm going on the run, when I'm like at a show, you know, when I'm driving in traffic with my kids screaming in the back seat. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of things happen that way, I think. And then you sort of couple that with what we get from the farms, what the combination of like a Shabbat dinner, like a Georgian and like Libyan household would be, plus, you know, Eastern Pennsylvania produce and then spices from Lior. That, and you shake it up and you spill it out. And that's like what Zahav essentially is, right? So, Speaking of Zahav and obviously Laser Wolf, Kafar, all your restaurants, I think you're definitely considered to be a huge ambassador of Israeli food in the United States. Yes. What is Israeli food and how would you describe it? So Israeli food is a simple answer would be it's food that is being cooked and served in Israel today. I guess maybe the more complicated but yet more concise answer is that it's the culmination of a hundred gastronomies that came from the Jewish diaspora coast countries interacting with indigenous, you know, Palestinian Druze or Levantine cuisines, which there are, are many, set in this scene of the convergence of the Spice Road, the Silk Road, but also the birthplace of modern and, and ancient agriculture and winemaking. 
And then geographically, you know, mountains and the sort of Levant or the, the Galilee as it relates to Israel, desert and Nabathean agriculture and sort of like water storage, right? And then, um, you know, shipping routes that were affected by the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. So all those things put together with all the thousand years of documented history, Ottoman rule, Byzantine rule, Persian rule, and now conflict and commonality that sort of help shape or sometimes hinder, but, but ultimately help narrative. That's what Israeli cuisine is to me. And what do you hope people in the U.S. understand or think about Israeli food? And how are you trying to, you know, do that with your restaurants? I wanted to represent and to advocate for Israel and to try to do it non-politically, which we know is impossible when it comes to a place like that. But my little brother was killed serving in the IDF, and it was hard to explain to people like what Israel was. And I wanted to be able to represent the things or the values that my brother had died defending. I just was tired of listening to or seeing other people judge this place that they knew nothing about. I just felt like I had sort of a job to do. And I had like a mission in my life, which I still believe this is my life's work. I needed to be able to express these things. And this is the way that I could do it was through food, you know, and it's not easy, but it is something that I love. And it's something that I believe in. Do you think since you opened Zahav and then Laser Wolf later in Philly, like, do you think even in those years, has people's understanding or perception of the food and what you're trying to do changed recently? Or do you feel there's still a lot of explanation or clarification or scene setting? I think that people love Israeli restaurants in the U.S. and I'm happy to be part of it. I think that when you have even non-Israelis or non-Jews opening Israeli restaurants, that we're doing the work that we need to do. We're humanizing a culture or a group of people that is often under a lot of scrutiny. So I think it's a great thing. L listen, when you go back to Israel and you're like, I know everything about Israeli food. I, this is what I do. And then you go to a restaurant that's been there for like 85 years that you've never heard of. There's still more work to be done and there's more stories to discover. So, you know, there's always more to explain and there's always more to celebrate. I think that there's this sort of tipping point where there's Israeli restaurants that are all over the country that are winning awards. And I'm very proud to be part of it. And so I think that people's understanding of Israeli food now versus 20 years ago in the U.S., absolutely. Where do you think it's going in the next 10 years, 15 years, both in Israel and in the States and around the world? I think it will continue to progress. I think that's kind of what Israel does. But I also think it's interesting because we're, there's progression in terms of like forward evolution. And then there's this sort of honoring where we've all come from and, and really promoting that, you know? And, and if you talk to Israelis that have grown up in Israel, there was a point where, you know, recently they like celebrate their food and like it's dancing on tables and shots and skug this. I mean, 20 years ago, skug was like almost embarrassing to a lot of people, right? Nobody wanted to bring pack plates of herbs for lunch, but now skug is on every, even Ashkenazi tables. At the falafel shop that I grew up going to, in uh, Karkor, Dvara, you know, it was owned by a Moroccan, opened this place that 
is in my opinion still one of the best falafels called you know Devora and and they would build the sandwiches for you and that was like the big thing it wasn't like this salad bar that everybody's accustomed to and when I was in boarding school in Parascana there was only harif right there was spicy it was pickles tomatoes tahina and harif those were your options now there's khug i mean kubana and jahtun and and malawakh were not eaten and in the last few decades they're celebrated along with kube i mean you guys have kube initiatives but iraqi jews those were things that the parents cooked or the mothers right more accurately would cook for the kids and they weren't didn't really go outside of the house outside of a few restaurants in just very sort of tiny communities but now those things i mean people fly to israel to eat those foods yeah so i don't know if we can answer this but why do you think that is why has this food come outside of the homes outside of these communities because people have realized that we don't need to like go to like european countries we don't know to go anywhere when you have one grandparent that is polish one that is libyan one that is yemeni one that is romanian and you have lived across the street from a palestinian for three generations you don't need to make like fettuccine alfredo in your restaurant you don't need to look outside of the things that actually make up who you are and we're like in the fertile crescent there's no other reason to go outside of that and then there's also this urge i think for the younger generation to be able to identify with their heritage right which is which is fascinating it's like the um like all the little walled communities that were sort of turn of the century to keep all the jews that had immigrated they kept their traditions and they would literally close these like gated communities all around Jerusalem but they were meant to basically keep all the traditions alive because Sephardic Jews didn't want to interact with like the Ashkenazi Jews right or the Mizrahim or whatever nobody wanted to interact but now because there is so much sort of mixing which is beautiful the sort of tapestry people still want to know where they're from the making kube on Fridays or Saturdays means something very different than it did 25 years ago. What I think is so incredibly fascinating about your perspective is that you were between Israel and the US. Your mom is American and your dad's Israeli. So you really grew up between these two worlds. And how do you feel that being in that place shapes your identity, but also how you can represent Israeli food and culture to the US? That's a great question. And I feel like that at the utmost sort of importance when it comes to what it is that I do, because I feel like I'm always discovering, you know, I mean, I'm Israeli, but I grew up in the States and I, my Hebrew kind of sucks and <laughs> I say please and thank you all the time. Right? So, no, like I just, I culturally, I don't totally feel at home when I'm here and maybe the same when I'm in Israel, you know, so I'm sort of caught between the two, but I feel like discovering and formulating and sinking into your identity of who makes you you for me has been this sort of like dipping my toes and exploration aspect of it i was born in israel grew up in pittsburgh we moved back we made aliyah when i was 15 i was in an american boarding school in partisana that was like probably the best year of my life or the most important year of my life moved back to the states because i was so pissed that we moved and then when i got back to the states felt like something just wasn't right like there was this piece of me that was gone this piece of me that i identify with every time I, we land I, i'm not sure if this is 
relatable, but like every time I leave, I'm sort of in tears, you know? And it's always this idea for me of trying to reconnect or rediscover or, you know, either celebrate or just, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is, but I think that that discomfort with like wherever I am in terms of identity or physical, you know, geography has sort of helped with maybe introducing people to a place. Well, because this is a Passover episode, we want to end with the four questions of this schmaltzy episode. So here we go. Matzo balls. Floaters or sinkers? Floaters. <laughs> you knew right away. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Matzo brai. Sweet or savory? Savory. But I don't like scrambled eggs with it. I mean, I like scrambled eggs, but I don't like matzo crushed up and thrown into like scrambled eggs. What I like to do is dip it almost like French toast and fry it and then jazz it up with things like cheese or like mapucha, that kind of stuff. I think it's good. Natural wine or Manischewitz? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm like, I don't drink. <laughs> ah. So I would say I don't drink and I'm sober. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> okay, fair, fair. If you could invite anyone to your Seder this year, who would it be? <sighs> God, I would just love my family for Seder, you know? I would love my aunts and uncles and cousins and all that stuff, you know? Well, well, I wish that for you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your Passover story with us and for a fascinating and honest conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for answering questions, honestly. <laughs> we are so grateful for your support always. And thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much for including me. If you're looking for some more Passover inspo, give us a follow on Instagram at Jewish Food Society and be sure to check out jewishfoodsociety.org for holiday recipes and family stories from around the world. We asked everyone last season for their guest recommendations and would love to keep hearing from you all this season. Got an idea for a guest we should have on Schmaltzy? They can be a chef, author, comedian, TV personality, your grandma, or anyone with a great story to tell. Just send us an email or voice memo with your suggestions to hi at jewishfoodsociety.org. If you enjoy this episode, be a mensch and share it with a friend. And please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Schmalti is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi and our theme music is by Yuval Semo. Special thanks to the team at Pod People. Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lusby, Robin Gelfenbein, and Carter Wogan. This episode was recorded at WTF Media Studios. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Happy Passover! Passover!